Today, brothers and sisters, we are finally beginning to actually go through the book of Leviticus. Um, we had a bit of introduction to the book uh, as a whole two weeks ago, particularly the concepts of holy and common on the one hand, and clean and unclean, uh, but now we really want to begin uh, expositing the book itself, and so we will be going through chapter 1. Having said all that, however, uh, while we will get into the passage itself, we do have some uh, introductory material that will be pertinent for us to understand as we dive in, and I'd like us to discuss that first. Um, if you notice, uh, I put in very cryptic writing uh, my, uh, my hieroglyphics and all that stuff on the back of the order of service in the notes section. Um, this is actually much more <laughs> readable than my crazy boxes last time, but uh, please look at that. Uh, very quickly. Let me just say, I got this from Gordon Wenham. Uh, I don't want to plagiarize. These are his divisions. Um, he's one of my go-to commentators on Leviticus. But I found it very helpful. If you'll look, uh, you'll notice that Leviticus, the book as a whole, breaks up into four major sections. Chapter 1 through 7 uh, deals with instructions for sacrifices. Um, that's the section we'll be beginning today. Uh, chapters 8 through 10 gives us the, the institution of the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, and it's there. Um, you have the incident with Nadab and Abihu. Chapters 11 through 16 deal largely with uncleanness uh, and how it is to be treated, um, the various ways that it's to be treated. And then 17 through 27, the largest section uh, deals with kind of what I've just titled, or he calls, um, practical instructions for holiness, Okay. Now, perhaps you can see this already, but there is quite a logical flow to this ordering of these four sections. Gordon Wenham says, first of all, the different kinds of sacrifices are explained in chapters 1 through 7, since they are presupposed in the rituals described in the following sections. For example, the three different kinds of sacrifices are involved in the ordination and installation of the priests. In other words, you can't quite have a priesthood yet if you don't know how to ordain them, and you don't know what those sacrifices are uh, until you have first covered them. So you first have to go after that, or go through that. Next, he says, but to offer sacrifice, a priesthood is necessary. Therefore, the ordination of the first priests is described in the second, makes, uh, second main section. It makes sense. You have to learn what the priests are, then you have to ordain priests, right? The only thing lacking now is when do we apply all these sacrifices? In, in what situations are they necessary? He says in chapters 11 through 16, the occasions for sacrifice form the subject of the third main section. Many things from certain kinds of animals, diseases, bodily discharges, as, where, as well as moral failures can make a man unclean and necessitate the offering of sacrifice as part of the cleaning process. Furthermore, he says, these faults affect not only the individual, but the tabernacle itself. Remember, I said, holy, common, clean, unclean. The, the elephant in the room is the tabernacle where God dwells. He says, these faults affect not only the individual, but the tabernacle itself, the seat of God's presence among his people. If this is polluted, Israel's holy redeemer can no longer dwell among them. 
Therefore, this section concludes fittingly with the description of the great day of atonement when the tabernacle was purged of all its defilements. Okay? And then lastly, um, he doesn't have anything for the last section, um, but it's really just practical instructions for holiness. And when I say practical, um, I don't mean purely moral holiness. Uh, There is ceremonial or typological holiness mixed in there as well. For Israel at that time, that's all holiness. Um, They did distinguish between uh, typological holiness and true moral purity, Um, but it's all treated together in that last section. And let me just say, um, I think that's actually the point. That's part of the point, is God is driving home to Israel. Um, There is a genuine connection between ceremonial holiness and moral purity. They're not the same thing, but one truly points and is meant to be a picture of another. Um, And so you'll see in that later section, um, there are things which are very, very ceremonial in terms of holiness, right by side with things that are uh, very purely moral. Um, And I kind of mention that now. I don't want to get too ahead of myself. But every now and then you'll hear, for example, Uh, For example, if you're dealing with an advocate of homosexuality um, and you point to them from Leviticus, there's two passages in Leviticus which condemn uh, homosexuality, and you'll say, well, see, right there, it it says that that's sin, right? And they'll go, oh, au contraire. They'll they'll go to another passage which says, well, you can't trim the edge of your beard, and those typological things are right side by side with moral things, and they'll say, you see, these... You obviously trim your beard, so you, know, you can't keep them together. Um, there are many things to say to that. Um, first of all, even the Old Testament itself distinguishes between ceremonial holiness and cleanness and true moral holiness and cleanness. Let me give you an example. Just think of it this way. There's a world of difference between David eating the showbread and David committing adultery with Bathsheba, Right? Even the Old Testament saints distinguish between typological holiness and cleanness. That's not just a New Testament thing. What we say then to those people is we say, well, first of all, the Old Testament distinguishes, but also that's kind of the point. God puts the ceremonial typological holiness side by side with the actual moral purity to drive home the typological connection, okay? So that, that's my little diatribe. We'll deal with that when we get further down into those passages. But all that to say, the last section deals kind of with more practical instructions that really fills out the details um, of everything else that hasn't been touched on yet. Well, today we are beginning with chapter 1. Um, if you can see on the same, on the notes section, um, this really deals uh, largely with a set of instructions for sacrifices. Um, Here, too, I have reproduced Gordon Wenham's outline, um, which I think is actually very interesting. This will help us to understand a a few things here. Um, Just note, first of all, that in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 6, verse 7, those are actually instructions for laymen concerning sacrifices. And we'll see, there are priests in this section who do things, but the main people who do things are actually laymen. Um, as I said two weeks ago, remember, you know, we hear Leviticus, and we think 
Levites. This is a priestly book. Not per, it's not a priestly book per se. It's very much for the layman. Uh, and you see that in the fact that the first six chapters are really instructions for the layman. Um, there are instructions for the priests. It starts in chapter 6, verse 8, through chapter 7, uh, verse 38. Um, there, the same sacrifices are mentioned, except they're mentioned from the perspective of the priest. Okay? This explains why there's a few differences. Um, for example, you notice in chapter 6, uh, verses 19 through 20, there is mention of a priestly grain offering, not just a grain offering. Um, that's not technically a different kind of offering. It's just that there were certain requirements when a priest gave a grain offering. Namely, the whole thing had to be burned. Okay? Why? Well, think of it this way. Priests typically received a part of, of an offering. But if they are truly themselves giving it, they aren't to receive anything back because the average worshiper, typically when he gave a grain offering, he didn't receive it back. Think of it this way. As a pastor, I tithe, okay? What if I just tithed to myself, though, right? Because you guys tithe to me, and I'm in the ministry, so I'll just tithe to myself, and I keep it. And I can say, I tithe just like you guys. I get it. It's hard. Oh, it's a real challenge to tithe to the Lord, and it's tithe directly back into your bank account, right? I write a check to myself. Um, you'd be like, Pastor, I don't really think you tithe. <laughs> That's kind of the thing. If priests give something to God, it's to be wholly given to them, just as when the average Israelite gets it. So that's why that is explained there as well. Lastly, uh, if you notice, um, the ordering is slightly different in the second section with the peace offering being last. The reason for that is probably because the peace offering was the only offering that the layman was allowed to eat. Um, the priests did receive a portion of it, like the other offerings, but it was mostly given back to them. And so probably for that reason, it's treated last. Okay, that's why there's two different differences, uh, two different lists. As far as the number of sacrifices, we can see that there are five. The burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. Now, each, one, each of these does have its own significance, which we will try to uh, uncover and unpack as we go along. But let me just say at the outset, I think Calvin is very right that we should do so very circumspectly. Um, some people have all kinds of grand divisions between the very specific significance between the sacrifices. Um, and sometimes I think people can get a little bit too far ahead in what they conclude. Um, that's not to say there's no significance. God gave it for a purpose, um, but we will take Calvin's advice and try to be rather circumspect uh, in what we conclude. Furthermore, you can see as far as the ordering, there is somewhat of a logical ordering among the sacrifices themselves. You can see that the first three are food offerings. I've kind of put that, uh, it says dot, dot, dot food offerings because in the passages, it calls them food offerings, right? The last two, in those, the phrase, he shall be forgiven, is found. Um, Wenham sub, uh, supposes that this kind of ordering would have been easier um, for Israelites and priests to memorize. So the first three are food offerings. 
uh, and the last two are not. And we'll look at the, the specific uh, meaning of those when we get there. Having said all that, it's a lot of introduction. Let's finally dive in and try to understand uh, Leviticus chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, it says, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Here, let me just say to you, as we go throughout the book of Leviticus, keep in mind that if you were to place this, where is this happening? It's happening here at the entrance of the tent of meeting, which is the tabernacle. If you remember when we were talking in Exodus, when Moses were seeing all these instructions, these detailed instructions for the tabernacle, if you remember, I said, don't forget, this is all taking place on top of Mount Sinai, right? It's, it's dialogue between God and Moses, so also for Leviticus. We're going to read all this, um, but it's actually being spoken by God to Moses at the entrance of the tabernacle. Verse 2, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. The word in Hebrew uh, for offering is, I guess in Hebrew class you would say korban, korban. You're probably more familiar with calling it a korban, korban. In fact, some people are called korban, that's a name, um, and it essentially means gift, to, uh, gift or given to God. The Septuagint translates it as a doron, which also means a gift. As far as the meaning of the Hebrew word, uh, the etymology kind of means that which is brought. In fact, it's often found with the verb bring. Um, when you bring, that which you bring. Um, but it's the idea of, of a gift, an offering to God. And this phrase refers to offerings given by individuals. Those are korban. Um, when it talks about maybe other offerings, other sacrifices, maybe on the national level, I don't believe those are referred to as korban. This is more for the average Israelite when they bring something. That is korban. Jesus actually mentions this term in Mark's gospel, and Mark's get, Mark gives the interpretation for Gentile readers who are reading, and he interprets it as given to God, given to God. It says in Mark chapter 7, verses 11 through 13, But you say, to the scribes and Pharisees, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. So the Pharisees were saying, Hey, your parents, maybe they're old, they're out on the street. They don't have anyone to take care of them, but you have already given this as Corbin. Um, most likely, that's referring actually to money. You could give money to the temple, um, and so that's kind of a broader meaning of sacrifice uh, than just animal sacrifice or a grain offering, but it's the same concept. It's something dedicated to God from an individual. Verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. Finally, we come to the first kind of offering. It is translated as a burnt offering. Perhaps better stated, 
we could call it the whole burnt offering. In fact, this is actually where the term holocaust comes from. Um, in Greek, this is called, uh, I think it's called a holocaustoma, and hola means whole or entire, uh, and kaustoma means burnt or consumed. Um, we think of the Jewish holocaust, right, because that term came to, came to be synonymous with something uh, of utter destruction, right? But the term itself just is from Greek, meaning holy burnt. Um, and this is a, a holy burnt offering. Um, and it's important to remember that because many of these other sacrifices are burnt to some degree, but they're not wholly burnt. Uh, only the burnt offering is. The only part that's not burnt of the whole burnt offering was the hide. According to Leviticus 7, 8, the priest could keep the hide. Other than that, the whole entire thing was burnt. Okay? The connection with fire a burnt offering, um, is seen especially in the Hebrew word for this. Um, it sounds kind of, it's the word ola. It sounds kind of dumb, like ola. Um, in Hebrew, you actually say it, it's a guttural. It's like ola. I can't, I can't even do it. There was a, a student in my seminary uh, from Iraq, and he could say that guttural like ola. I can't, I can't even do it. Um, but it quite literally means uh, that which ascends that which goes up. Um, the term Allah means to go up in Hebrew, and Ola means that which goes up, um, which is a very fitting interpretation since the whole thing truly does go up in the smoke, right? So it's called an Ola. The reason why Leviticus starts with burnt offerings first instead of grain offerings or sin offerings is because burnt offerings are the most basic and common form of sacrifice in the Old Testament, and I would even say um, in the ancient world itself. Gordon Wenham says, the reason for describing the burnt offering first is that it was the commonest of all the sacrifices. Um, that's really true. If you're able to do like word searches on your, your Bible on your phone, you were to type in sacrifices, pretty much whenever a sacrifice has been given up until the introduction of the law, uh, the Mosaic law in Exodus, they're primarily burnt offerings. Um, for example, we're not told this explicitly, but Abel's offering was probably a burnt offering. We are told explicitly that Noah offered burnt offerings. It's the same term after the flood waters receded, and Abraham offered up uh, the ram as a burnt offering um, instead of Isaac. And in fact, as they're talking leading up, um, he's saying, we're going to go with a burnt offering. And Isaac says, well, where's the, where's the wood for the burnt offering? It's the most common kind of offering that there was in the ancient world. And that's why it starts with it here. Verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. I won't com comment on this part too much, uh, that it's a male without blemish. Not all sacrifices had to be male, interestingly. You might think, well, the picture of Jesus Christ, they all have to be male. Some of them could be female, some goats, for example, um, and obviously with birds, with pigeons, there's nothing said about the gender of the birds. Um, interestingly, there could be blemished, what we might call blemished offerings as well, though they had to be free will offerings. 
They couldn't be required because you needed to have sin forgiven. Um, they had to be something that was, you know, we use the phrase, above and beyond your normal giving. If they were like that, they could be given, but it was only certain kinds of blemishes. It has to do, um, I think, if, a, if an animal is largely clean, but a limb is too long or too short, those you could give in a free will offering. Typically, though, they could not have any blemish, and typically they had to be male, though as we'll see, there were some exceptions to that. Okay? It continues on. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. The big thing I want us to take away today, if you're going to kind of take two things to really chew on and meditate on for your souls about the burnt offering, um, are really two features of the burnt offering, um, but we see it in sacrifices in general, um, in some, some in more cases than in others. Um, but in the, bur- uh, in the burnt offering, we see both. These two features are these. First, an atonement for sin. And secondly, the praising and worshiping of God. First, the atonement for sin and the praising and worshiping for God. Uh, of God. In the atonement of sin, sin is removed and forgiven. In the worship of God, the worshiper gives back to God. They're giving thanks. Both of these are found in the burnt offerings, and both concepts are, are found in varying degrees in the other ones as well. For example, there is some kind of atonement element in all of the sacrifices except for the grain offering. You might think, well, the sin and the guilt offering, those are really the atonement for sin. In every offering, except for the grain offering, there is some mention of atonement being made. And in all of those, they put their hands on the sacrifice. Um, the only exception is the bird. Like, no one, because it's like, hey, here's my bird. Um, except with the exception of the grain offering, there is always an atonement element. And the reason why there's nothing with that in the grain offering is there's no blood. There's no, no victim. There's no sacrifice in that sense. Um, the grain offering is more on the thanksgiving element. It is really giving back to God, right? Um, but there's no atonement in it um, at all. Interestingly, the grain offering is said to be a food offering, a food offering to God. And yet we can see from the other outline, from the outline, both the burnt offering and the peace offering also have this element of being a food offering. Um, it's, it's a kind of a praise, a giving back to God. The sin offerings and the guilt offerings are not called food offerings. They seem to be focused exclusively on atonement, kind of like how the grain offering is focused exclusively on the giving of thanks. But in the others, we kind of see both of those two elements. Um, uh, nevertheless, as I said, even in the burnt offering, there's an element of forgiveness and atonement for sin. Now, if, if this is a kind of forgiveness and an atonement, why is it not called a sin offering? Why is it the burnt offering? Well, Patrick Fairbairn, in his classic work, The Typology of Scripture, uh, which you can find in PDF for free online. It's very good. I'd recommend it. 
He explains uh, this way. The sin and guilt offerings were presented with the view simply of making atonement for sin, very commonly particular sins, and they had their ob- for their object the restoring of the offerer to a state of peace and fellowship with God, which had been interrupted by the commission of iniquity. And we'll see that when we get to the sin and guilt offering. It kind of starts off and says, if anyone does this or does this, and then it talks about the sin and guilt offerings. So it's more for particular sins and breaches that have been committed. He continues, the burnt offering was for those who were already standing within the bonds of the covenant and without any sense of guilt lying upon their conscience. We are not, however, to suppose on this account that there was no conscience of sin in the offerer when he presented this sacrifice. For he was required to lay his hand on the head of the victim, with which confession of sin was always accompanied. But the guilt for which atonement here required to be made was not that properly of special and formal acts of transgression, but rather of the shortcomings and imperfections which perpetually cleave to the servant of God and mingle even with his best services. So with the others, you're thinking, I've sinned. I I did something. I touched something. I committed some kind of sin. I need to go to have this specifically atoned for. With the burnt offering, maybe there's no particular sin in mind, but just you as a sinner. Though you have faith in the Lord, you still have to have atonement made for your sin. And so, so it is with the burnt offering. Verse 5 says, Then he, the worshiper, not the priest, shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So the worshiper is the one who kills the bull, most likely cutting it in its throat or somewhere where it's going gonna, it's gonna to bleed out. The priest would have some kind of a basin, one of the bronze basins, to catch the blood, and then they would go and take it and throw it on the altar, the sides of the altar, the purpose being to cleanse the altar before they go to put the sacrifice on it. I think one thing we want to stop and think about for a moment is how gruesome and dramatic of an affair this was. Um, as moderns, especially city dwellers, you guys are Texan, Texans, but you're just a bunch of a city slickers. Um, I said that to the church once, and Jeremy came up to me afterwards, and he goes, uh, hey, I'm not a city slicker. And I was like, okay, Jeremy. I live like five minutes from downtown Haltom City, okay? Um, anyway, we really don't live around animals. I think a lot of this is lost. Um, this is a very dramatic thing that happens. You're cutting the blood. The blood squirts out in copious amounts of blood all over the sand. It's probably splashing on you. Your arm is probably covered. You hear the the groans, the cries of the animal, and then you see it slowly kind of break down. If you've ever seen an animal, um, I think of in in hunting deer, uh, when they shoot the deer and it's bleeding out, it slowly like staggers. And then it just falls down, and then you hear it like, and then the last breath goes out. And every time you do that, you think, 
if not for atonement for sin, that was me right there. Very dramatic. <laughs> Just keep that in mind. We're kind of moving over this quickly, and he shall kill it, and it kind of moves along very business-like. This is a very dramatic, gruesome, bloody affair that takes place. Verse 6. Then he, the worshiper, shall flay or skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. Now, the purpose of washing the entrails was to wash out any kind of dung that would be inside of them. Same thing with the legs. In fact, the term uh, is probably actually a reference to hind legs. Um, and if you've ever worked with cattle or just been around cattle, you know that there's often dung, too, on, on animals. They, they don't mind. They kind of live in it. They walk around in it. None of that could touch the altar. Um, that all had to be cleaned, and then it would be handed to the priest. Remember, I said unclean and holy, those things are never to come in contact. It's also why it is the worshiper himself who washes the entrails. The priest can't. He's holy. He can't touch something unclean. It has to be washed of all of its dung, then given to the priest, and then he puts it on the altar. Verse 9 and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The important thing that I want us to see here in this part is that this is a food offering. It says a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. I would argue that in this we see the second element that is in the burnt offering and common in other offerings as well. Namely, that it is not so much for the atoning of sin, but it is a positive act of worship. Um, we might say the worshiper here is, in effect, giving back to God, acknowledging. It's really an act of thanksgiving uh, and praise. Um, if you remember, uh, I said that we chose Psalm 66 for our call to worship because it mentions burnt offerings you look at how he refers to burnt offerings there, it's not really with atonement in mind. It's a giving thanks, actually, for specific deliverances of God. He says there, uh, Psalm 66, verses 13 through 15, I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals, with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams, I will make an offering of bulls and goats. It's a thanksgiving to God. It's praising and worshiping. Um, and that's really the second element in the burnt offering that's very common in others. Now, I don't want to go down a rabbit trail here, but since it is actually important to understand the function of this, of the food offering, and to understand the sacrifices, do have to explain a few things here. Um, is anyone using an NASB right now? Nobody. Good, good. Anyone use you, Dennis? Anyone using the New King James Version? Okay, all right. Now, the NASB or the New King James along with, I would say, 
almost all earlier English translations, the King James, the Geneva, the Tyndale, all that stuff, it does not call these a food offering, okay? Rather, it says something along the lines about them being an offering of fire. Is that kind of what yours says? Yeah. I'm going to argue this should be understood as a food offering uh, along the lines of giving back, giving worship to God, um, and not as a fire offering. And so it's kind of a rabbit trail, but it is important to understand, I think, the function of it. So I do want to explain this a little bit. As far as the term that's used in Hebrew, it's the word ishe, ishe. The word for fire in Hebrew is esh, esh. Right there, you can kind of hear a similarity already, ishe and esh. Now, on the one hand, it's argued because they sound similar, they look somewhat similar, and also many of these sacrifices are burned, right? It seems to be a logical step. It not only sounds like fire, but these are burned. Um, and so it's argued that this should be understood more along the lines of a sacrifice made by fire. I don't think that's entirely crazy. I think there's some reasons. I, yeah, I, I could see that. I don't agree with it, though. The arguments against that are several. First of all, although Ishe and Aish do sound very similar uh, at first hearing, Yet there are many other words that sound just as similar, if not more so, and they're not in any way necessarily connected. For example, the word for woman or wife in Hebrew is isha, isha. It's more similar to ishe than esh is, and actually they're spelled the same. As far as the consonants go, the vowels are different, but it's spelled exactly the same, and yet I would say there's no connection between womanhood or wifehood or anything in these sacrifices here. So although Ishe and Esh, it kind of sounds similar at first, it's not actually as striking um, when you put it in context with other words. Furthermore, another issue with understanding Ishe here as an offering made by fire is that it's not consistently used in connection with fire itself. For example, while it does often refer to things that are burned, such as the burnt offering, yet it can also refer to things that never touch fire at all. For example, the bread of the presence, that's not burned at all, not even after they're done with it. When they're done, the priests get to eat it. It's changed out with new bread. That is also called an ishe, but it's not at all a sacrifice made with fire. On the other hand, Although the burnt offering is truly burnt by fire, there are other sacrifices which are also burned by fire, but they are not referred to as an ishe. For example, the sin offering. Although it is burnt on the altar, it says it gives a pleasing aroma. Nevertheless, the term ishe is not used to describe it, though technically it is in some sense an offering made by fire. So the usage of the term itself doesn't really match perfectly um, the concept of an offering made by fire. Lastly, for me, the most convincing argument, I think, that Ishe should be understood more along the lines of a food offering or a food gift, is that it's often connected to the idea of the bread of God, God's bread. For example, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 21. 
Leviticus chapter 21. <clears throat> 21 verse 6. Speaking of the priests, they shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, for they offer the Lord's food offerings, the Lord's ishe, the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. There, the term ishe is followed up by a parallel phrase, the bread of their God. And there are several examples of that throughout the book of Leviticus. On the one hand, this confirms the connection with the showbread. Um, it's God's own bread. So it's his food offering. This is uh, God's food. You're giving it to him. It's his bread in his house, on his table. And so it makes sense that it's a food offering. Furthermore, the idea of the bread of God is not just connected to the showbread, but it's actually connected to the animal sacrifices as well. Um, here, I would say that the term bread, when referring to the bread of God, is used more along the lines of food. Um, you know, if you read early modern English, you might read something and, and it'll say, they gave the horses meat to eat. Have you ever heard anything like that? They gave the cattle meat. Well, that's just an older way in English of saying food. We might say uh, food and water, food and drink. It's a very common phrase in early, early modern English to say meat and drink. And meat doesn't just refer to actual meat. It just means food in general. Um, in fact, the King James kind of speaks this way sometimes. For example, when Jesus says to his disciples in John 4, 32, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Remember he says that? The King James says, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Um, and that's because meat in early modern English more, more along the lines just means, just means food. Same thing with bread. Bread, when it talks about the bread of God, it's not just referring to actual bread. I would say it's referring to food in a general sense. And we see this in the fact that some of the animal sacrifices are actually called the bread of God. For example, if you look at Leviticus chapter 22, verse 25, Leviticus 22, verse 25, it says, Neither shall you offer as the bread of your God any such animals gotten by a foreigner. So the bread of God is a bigger concept, and I would say it's more to be understood along the lines of food. That goes hand in hand, then, I would say, with tipping the evidence uh, on the side of understanding Ishe as a food offering. It is God's food, so to speak. Now, on the one hand, we have to clarify, um, with the food offerings, there's an emphasis of giving back to God, Right? It's never with the idea of feeding God, providing for him, clothing this God, carrying this God around. He can't move around. God mocks that idea. I would say it's actually the opposite. You are giving back to your God because he provides for you so well. It's kind of like the Sabbath. Our God takes care of us so good, we don't have to work on the Sabbath because he'll take care of us the rest. So also with food offerings. We give back to God 
Because this isn't actually our life. God is our life. In him we live and move and have our being. And it was also the way that God provided for and quite literally fed the Levitical priests. You see this commonly used uh, in the book of Leviticus. It is out of the Lord's food offerings that the priests are said to eat. Leviticus 24.9, It shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food, port, food offerings, a perpetual due. So it's a giving back to God. It's an act of worship, and it should more be understood along the lines of a food offering to God, okay? Well, with that being said, let's wrap up this chapter, and then we will conclude with some application before we leave. Picking up in verse 10, it says, If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or the goats, he shall bring a male without blemish. And he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's, priests, the, the, Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. There the crop, the removing of that, if you don't know what a crop is, uh, not all birds have it. It's kind of this puffy section here. Um, the way I've understood that is it's somewhere that they store food before it goes to their stomach. Um, and, and a lot of times you can just pull it off. It's kind of seen along the same line uh, as cleaning the entrails. It's unclean. It's not to go with the rest. So just as the entrails are cleansed of their dung, so also the bird is removed from its crop. It's just thrown into the ashes, okay? Verse 17. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, with these last two kinds of burnt offerings, either from the flock, goats, uh, or sheep, or a bird, um, this is really for those who did not have a bull to sacrifice. Um, to, to own bulls, that, even today, that, that's quite a chunk of change to buy, to buy a bull. Um, there were poor people in Israel who didn't own land. Um, perhaps they were uh, in kind of in debt. They were kind of slaves um, they'd sold themselves into debt slavery. Um, they, they wouldn't have any property themselves. They wouldn't have animals, but they would still have to give uh, burnt offerings, and they could do it with a pigeon or a turtle dove if they didn't have it. The phrase is not, is not really found here, but elsewhere we'll see this in Leviticus. It's the phrase, if he cannot afford. Um, and so that's why. It's the same concept throughout those, 
but it's, it's kind of uh, of lesser value for those who can't afford a bull or for those who can't even uh, afford a lamb or a goat. The great thing about pigeons is they're free. You don't have to take care of them. All you have to do is be quick enough to catch one, um, and you can offer a burnt offering to the Lord. Well, with that, let's conclude with some application as we've considered the burnt offering. I'd say the application for us is actually quite simple, and it's something we'll see um, in many ways throughout the other sacrifices and offerings as well. It's simply this. Christ is our burnt offering to the Lord. We can trace this out and fill this out as we follow along the lines of the two elements of this sacrifice that we've seen so far. On the one hand, an atonement for sin, and yet on the other, a positive worship and praising of God. In both of those regards, Christ is our burnt offering. First, Christ is, of course, our sacrifice by which our sins are atoned for. Just as the worshiper laid his hands upon the head of the sacrifice, signifying a transfer of sins, this was often accompanied by an actual confession of sins. We're not told that here, um, but when the priest did it on the, on the, the Day of Atonement, he confessed the sins of Israel over, um, signifying a transfer. In fact, there it says, he lays the sins on the head of the sacrifice. Um, you and I have done that, we can say, by faith in Jesus Christ. Um, if you've come to Christ for forgiveness of sins, you have effectively, by faith, laid your hands upon him as your sacrifice. Your sins have been um, uh, transferred to him, and he has borne them and taken them away. One way that this is often described, uh, you see this a lot in hymns, um, but it's, it's a very fitting metaphor um, a lot of times our sin is described as a heavy burden, a heavy load, um, the awful weight of sin that we must carry, and we can find no relief from it. Um, John Bunyan describes uh, Christian this way. Um, you kids who've been going through Pilgrim's Progress, the first, I don't know about half, but the, the, the beginning at least of Pilgrim's Progress is largely dealing with Christian's attempt to get relief from his burden, trying to get his burden off of his back. And in fact, he tries various ways to, to, to find and ease his burden. We're told in one part, he meets Mr. Worldly Wiseman. Very world, he has worldly wisdom. He tells him to go to the town of morality, and there he'll meet with a gentleman named Mr. Legality. He says, this man, quote, hath skill to cure those that are somewhat crazed in their wits with their burdens. Those people who have a weird conscious thing that feel the consciousness and guilt of their own sins. He helps them with that stuff. We're told Christian turned out of his way to go to Mr. Legality's house. But behold, when he was got now hard by the hill, it seemed so high also, that side of it that was next to the wayside did hang over so much that Christian was afraid to venture further, lest the hill should fall on his head. Wherefore, there he stood still and knew not what to do. Also, his burden seemed now heavier to him 
than while he was in the way. And there came flashes of fire out of the hill that made Christian afraid that he should be burned. Here, therefore, he sweat and did quake for fear. And now he began to be sorry that he had been taken, that he had taken Mr. Worldly Wise Man's counsel. And so even then, poor Christian can't, can't be loosed of his burden. And it's not until he comes to the cross of Christ. He comes, Bunyan says, Christian ran thus to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below, in the, in the bottom, uh, in the bottom, a sepulcher, a grave, a tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from his shoulders and fell from his back and began to tumble. Whenever I hear that, I always have to stretch out my back. It's like, oh, the idea of this burden that has been uh, uh, finally taken away Christian sings and says, Thus far I did come laden with my sin, nor could anything ease the grief that I was in till I came hither. What a place is this? Here must be the beginning of my bliss. Must hear the burden fall from off my back. Must hear the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather the man that there was put to shame for me. Bunyan's point is that Christian's burden came off at the cross because Christ was the one who bore that on the cross. That load of sin, there is no other way to get rid of it. Children, let me tell you, if you feel convicted of your sins, you cannot find peace. There is no other way to get rid of it than to give it to Jesus. No one else can take it. No one else can bear it and save you. Those are the only two options. Only you will bear it or Jesus Christ will take it. And he tied on the sin, bearing the load of sin. It's interesting, brothers and sisters, there are those um, today who will tell you out of one side of their mouth that they are reformed and that they hold to the Reformed doctrine of justification. And out of the other side of their mouth, they will tell you that imputation and the doctrine of justification has nothing to do with the idea of a transfer. Nothing transferred. Christ's righteousness is not transferred to you. I don't know what they say about our sins to Jesus. It seems really hard to deny that, harder than to deny Christ's righteousness. But they deny that. There's no transfer right? They do this as all, all others who have denied this, they do this to establish their own righteousness, right? But you read the Old Testament, you read passages like Leviticus with the sacrifices, and I personally marvel at the audacity to say there is no such concept as a transfer in imputation and in our justification, the hands of the worshiper are placed on. In Scripture, whenever hands are placed on something, it typically implies some kind of a transfer. You're giving something. You see this with the apostles as well and the Holy Spirit. How is the Holy Spirit given, at least initially, in the book of Acts? The apostles come. They lay their hands on the Gentiles or whosoever have you, and then the Holy Spirit falls upon them. In fact, Simon Magus saw this, and he tried to buy that power from Peter. He says, 
Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. To lay hands is to give something to someone else, to transfer something. Brothers and sisters, your sins were transferred to Jesus Christ. And if your sins were transferred to Christ, his righteousness was transferred to you. Do not be deceived by those who say something so boldly audacious as there's nothing in the Bible to imply a transfer of sin or righteousness with imputation. Don't buy that. That's going back to Rome. Don't do that. Your sins are entirely transferred on Christ. Perhaps some of you have come here today with the sense of your failures throughout this past week. Perhaps you've come well aware of the ways in which you fell. And maybe not once, maybe not twice, three times, like, oh man, this week was a throwaway week. If I could just kind of delete this week and move on, I'd be fine. But remember, brothers and sisters, you don't carry your sins. You don't even carry it after you've been forgiven and then you have to carry these and, and then get them forgiven again. There's a sense in which we're forgiven in the sense of our consciousness, but we do not bear our sin anymore. You're not laden with it because Christ bore the whole thing on the cross. The second way that Christ is our burnt offering, brothers and sisters, is the second way, the second element that we've seen in the burnt offering, namely that it is a positive worshiping of God. Christ says something very interesting in the Gospel of Mark. He says, To love God with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Meaning, burnt offerings is meant to be a worship of God. It's, it's pleasing to him. You are giving thanks, and God loves that, right? What it's really meant to point to, though, is loving God with all your heart and loving neighbor as yourself, essentially fulfilling the law. Christ Jesus fulfilled the law in our stead. In this sense, just as uh, you, you have always this picture, this pleasing aroma to the Lord, this pleasing aroma of worship that the Lord accepts, Christ gave perfect worship in our stead, brothers and sisters. In that sense, we can say Christ himself was a pleasing aroma of righteousness, perfectly fulfilling the law's requirements. And what's more, because we are in Christ, we too now have that pleasing aroma of his perfect fulfillment of the law. You might think, as I come to the Lord today, man, I stink with my sin. Oh, my stink sin. My, my sin stinks. It's like, oh, it's gross. Not in the sense of, of your standing with Christ. When the Lord smells you, so to speak, there's the aroma of Christ, his righteousness, fully pleasing to the Lord. And because of that, he receives you with love. Come to him all the more with your sins. Oh, Lord, cleanse me. This is unpleasing to you. Wash me even more. Sanctify me. But do so with the confidence that you have the aroma of Christ's righteousness on you, and he will accept you because of that. Therefore, all the more, we say, as Paul says in Romans 12:1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We do worship. We do come from this and say, let your lives be a burnt offering to the Lord. But we do so by saying Christ already offered perfect worship in our place. And he has atoned for our sin. And that is the joy. That's what motivates our heart worship. That's why we're living sacrifices, because Christ is our perfect worship. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for thank you for your son. Lord, as we contemplated the fact that an animal was cut, bled, and drew his last breath, so also, Lord, literally, your son was nailed to a cross. His flesh was torn. He bled profusely until he finally drew his last breath. He bore our sins on the cross, Father. Father, would would you enable us to understand by faith the fullness of what that means? That Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the spotless Lamb, bore our iniquities. God, would you help us to understand the fullness of that? Would you help us to live in the freedom of that, Lord? Now that our sins have been taken away from us, would you help us to live in the joy of that, Lord? In the confidence that Jesus has offered perfect worship for us, Lord. And pray for our children, Lord, who don't know you. God, I pray that the burden of their sin would become heavier and heavier until they give it to Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, would you, would you help them like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress to feel the great weight of their sin, the great weight of wrath and condemnation that shall fall upon them if they do not repent and come to Jesus? Would you help them to realize, Lord, that Jesus is merciful? He longs to receive that load of sin and take it away from them and forgive them. Father, would you grant them faith? We ask this in Jesus' name.